This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. A number of years ago, with a number of you in this room who are community leaders, who were the founders and then the uh, leadership circle members of the 21st Century China program, we decided that sitting in the location of San Diego uh, on the Pacific Ocean and with the mission of the School of Global Policy and Strategy to really focus on the foundational roots of the intersection of the Americas and Asia as part of its policy mission in the 21st century, that it was our obligation to build the best academic scholarship program on the politics, foreign policy, and economics of China in the United States. And in some ways, symbolically today, uh, you are seeing the result of that investment that so many of you made. So we thank you as founders and supporters. And I want to say to all the faculty members here who are involved in the program, both from the school and from across the UC San Diego campus, uh, that occasionally we really can measure success visibly, and there's no doubt that this is the greatest cluster of scholars now working on contemporary China in the US. And when the protest comes from Columbia University, remember, you can't find my new email. Uh, Part of the mission of putting together the program was to really uh, make it into a place where the fundamentals of great scholarship were also engaged in a public discussion about the relationship between the United States and China and the impact of that relationship on the 21st century. And so as part of that effort, Professor Susan Shirk who was the founding faculty member of 21st Century China and uh, serves still really as its single most important driving force in many ways, uh, took on the notion of practical engagement with other leaders in thought and policy about China in the United States, and that led us to today. Uh, In a joint effort between the 21st Century China Program and the Asia Society's China Center, which is led today by Orville Schell, who is the director of the Asia Society Program, a distinguished scholar of China, and also uh, an alum of the UC system. He was a dean at UC Berkeley. Uh, Wrong place in the UC system, but uh, nonetheless adding luster to all of us. And uh, then, in addition, bringing into this effort with the Asia Society a group of the leading practitioners and strategic thinkers about the China-U.S. relationship emerged the report you're going to hear about today. As part of that group and our third panelist today, uh, we have Ambassador Winston Lord. Uh, Winston Lord has been at the center of the U.S.-China diplomatic relationship Uh, since its uh, really rebirth 
uh, with the Kissinger and Nixon trips in the 1970s. He was a member of both those missions. And then later he served as our U.S. ambassador to China. He was the assistant secretary of state for East Asia, responsible for the China uh, relationship. And he also served as the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. And of course, Professor Shirk needs no further introduction except to say that she is one of the leading scholars of Chinese politics and foreign policy in the United States. She was Deputy Assistant Secretary of State with responsibilities for China and the Clinton administration, and as I said, a driving force in this program. So we have together three truly distinguished long-term experts on China representing an even larger collection of scholars and practitioners. And we have a moment where they can have a conversation and help us think through this relationship, which is so central to the future of our country and China. Welcome. Thank you. So um, thank you very much. Peter, and uh, thanks to everybody here in the room. I feel it's really a, all my friends and family are here, <laughs> uh, plus uh, a lot of other great community people and people who've traveled from other places to join the conversation with us at this really critical time in U.S.-China relations. So Orville is going to get us started uh, by talking a little bit about the background of the task force that he and I created, which uh, and the report of that task force is the reason for us being here today. Well, thanks, Susan, and thanks, Peter. It's always nice to be here because, indeed, I think San Diego has managed to put together a, a wonderful confluence of scholarship and sort of current events, and uh, I think the Academy can very easily become detached from what is going on in the real world, and it's nice to see these things kneel together. So the reason why we three are here is because we are all uh, on uh, the task force on uh, U.S.-China policy. And this was something that about a year and a half ago, in anticipation of the presidential election, that Susan and I sort of looked out on the horizon and thought that there, there really was building a kind of an inflection point in U.S.-China relations, this very seminal, important uh, bilateral relationship. Uh, and that it would probably culminate in the presidential election. And so we gathered together 20 people that we thought uh, were colleagues that we, we, we esteemed. Uh, but above all, we thought we would, could learn something from because the sort of animating impulse for us was that we ourselves found that we weren't really sure what we thought ought to be done. We've been spending our whole lives studying this country and U.S.-China relations. And we found, moreover, that, that our colleagues had similar sentiments because things were changing. So we met for a year and a half. We met out here at Sunnylands. We met in New York. We met in Washington. We met in Oxford. We went to Tokyo, to Seoul, kind of collecting string, trying to see what other people thought uh, and what uh, we should think. How should our country deport itself when the new presidential administration came in. And Susan and I, and Winston was, did yeoman service too, I have to say, uh, writing, 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 and then lo and behold, what happened? Donald Trump got elected. 
That was like throwing a bomb right in the middle of all of our labors. Suddenly, this equation, which had one side that was sort of uh, in motion and out of balance, suddenly the other side went out. And in order to figure out this uh, very complicated pas de deux that, that China and US were dancing, you had to look at both sides. So we had to rewrite, well, I don't know how many times we wrote this bloody thing, but uh, you will see the result of it. I think it's outside. Now, we went to Washington uh, last week. Uh, we can talk a little bit about it. I think it was a very interesting trip for us because quite to our surprise, we found, you know, in the Obama administration, you would go to Washington and people, everybody there thought they knew what the answer was. And they would listen to you and indulge you, and you'd get your time, and then things would continue as they were. I think, and I don't know how Winston and Susan felt, but my sense was that nobody knew what the hell to think in, in, in Washington under Trump. It was as if the slate had been wiped clean, and there had been a lot of confusion thrown into the air, but no one quite knew where it was going to come down, what to propose, how to think. And so it was a very propitious moment for us to be there, for our report to be out. And lo and behold, you began to see this picture beginning to form. Now Trump has come out for one China, et cetera, et cetera. So this is sort of a little bit of a background, uh, I think. And I think Susan and Winston would share the sentiment that this, this group, which uh, we, we, we're a bit like, I think at this point, a, a SEAL team. You drop us in any country in the world, we'll, we'll get the job done, uh, you know, ought to continue. Because if there ever was a time in American history when things are up for grabs, surely it's now. So there are many more things to be said, but let me stop here and remand it back into okay. Susan's custody. So uh, thank you, Orville. I mean, Orville and I have been working on this together for so long. You know, it's, um, it's, uh, we want to keep the group together, I think, in part because uh, the relationships among the people in the group are, have gotten very strong, and we really trust one another to admit what policies haven't worked in the past. So you have in this group a lot of people who've served in very senior positions in government, uh, certainly more senior than mine, uh, with Winston, with Jim Steinberg, Deputy uh, Secretary of State, Kurt Campbell was assistant secretary too. And uh, in this room, we would acknowledge to one another what things we had done that clearly hadn't worked, as well as what had worked, and then try to figure out where to move from here. So the, um, I'm, I'd like to just give you the three big takeaways from our report, but I hope that you will go on our website and download it and read it for yourselves and then let us know what you think and we can continue the conversation here in San Diego about uh, our recommendations. Uh, we, first of all, think that the U.S. moving forward needs to be very clear about what its own interests are, what our national interests are, because in China, the Chinese government often states very clearly what its core interests are, and then we react. But we believe that it's important for the United States to 
make explicit what our national interests are vis-a-vis China and then to base our approach on our national interests. So, I mean, we don't say it quite the same way as Donald Trump, America first, or anything like that, because we believe that actually our interests are served when other countries benefit too. But we do believe that we should be explicit about our interests. Secondly, we think that American interests are best served by maintaining the basic stability and foundation of U.S.-China relations. That some of the radical ideas that uh, President Trump uh, floated during the campaign transition and in the first few weeks in office about, for example, uh, putting our relationship with Taiwan as a bargaining chip on other issues with China, which is what the implication would be of us throwing out our one China policy, which is really part of the constitution of U.S.-China relations ever since the days of Nixon and Mao, uh, would serve no purpose. It wouldn't help Taiwan, wouldn't help the United States, and it certainly would uh, upend the basic stability of U.S.-China relations. Uh, Also, across the board, uh, draconian, punitive tariffs wouldn't serve any interests either, just lead to a trade war. So basically, we believe that the foundation of U.S.-China relations, the basic stability, needs to be maintained. And that it has served U.S. interests well, that by encouraging China to enter the world to pursue market reforms, uh, the cooperation with China in global governance institutions, uh, our ability to cooperate with China on uh, global problems of common concern like climate, like Ebola and other epidemics, like uh, the Iran nuclear deal, nuclear nonproliferation, all these are very much in U.S. national interest. So we just shouldn't throw them out. We shouldn't undervalue the benefit of stable relations with, the, with China for the United States. And of course, the prevention of direct military conflict with China is you know, probably the greatest interest for the United States. But, however, in certain areas, China's actions, especially since the global financial crisis of 2008-9, which we see as really kind of a turning point, uh, in some areas are really harmful to U.S. interests. And we identify these three areas as, first of all, a more assertive stance in Asia by China, especially its fixation on these maritime sovereignty claims, which are causing a lot of friction with China's neighbors and certainly with the United States, raising a lot of questions about China's intentions and setting China in opposition to international law. The second area is in its economic policy. China's become more mercantilist, more protectionist in its 
economic policy after decades of uh, opening to the world and uh, pursuing economic development through interdependence. But now it's uh, uh, made life very difficult for foreign companies. American companies no longer find a level playing field. Chinese regulations, uh, cyber hacking of uh, foreign companies to get their intellectual property and commercial secrets. And in a lot of ways, uh, uh, our companies are at a disadvantage, not just American companies, but this is the same thing we heard when we went to Seoul, when we went to Tokyo, when we went to Europe and talked to the Germans and the Brits. People, everyone is starting, everyone wants Chinese investment. That's good, it's job creating, um, and we'd like to see that, strengthens the interdependence between our two countries, but we want our companies to be treated fairly in China as well. And third, uh, China has become more repressive in its domestic politics. And of course, Americans have always, especially since 1989, had, in Tiananmen crisis, had great concerns about human rights in China, but now those human rights practices are actually targeting American non-governmental organizations, uh, our media organizations, journalists, and um, our academics who write things that the party doesn't like. So what we find is barriers between our two societies in a way that really erodes the very foundation, the social foundation of good U.S.-China relations. So we advocate greater firmness in responding to these three areas. And of course, figuring out how to do that effectively is no easy task. Uh, China is not is now a very influential country with a lot of sources of leverage itself. And so, and our economies are highly interdependent so that we don't benefit by destabilizing the Chinese economy. You know, to the contrary, we benefit from a dynamic Chinese economy. That's good for the whole global economy as well as the United States. So figuring out how to push back, you might say, but in a smart and effective way is a lot of what our report is about. So um, I think I'll leave it there. And we have a lot of very specific recommendations in this report. Um, and one set has to do with the civil society and human rights issues. and. Uh, I'd like to turn to Winston Lord to talk a little bit about that, as well as about uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong. First, a few general comments. Uh, the many distinguished people in this audience and friends and personal acquaintances, I, at the risk of making a mistake, I do want to single out Harold Brown, one of my heroes and a great public servant. In fact, Harold, you and I worked on a China study about 10 years ago, if I remember, but a few things have changed. A couple other points. If I were to put the report in Twitter form, <laughs> I would say essentially, one, 
U.S.-China relations are in a precarious situation with the trends worrisome. Secondly, there's, as Susan pointed out, uncertainties on both sides of the Pacific. So we're warning Trump about what he might do, and we're warning the Chinese about what they're already doing. Uh, and within that context, we feel that you maintain, again, what she said, the essential framework, but within that, we do have to push back in certain areas. And on the whole, on the global front, in the areas she mentioned, and Chinese peacekeeping and, and Afghanistan, I would add to that list, and uh, <coughs> natural disasters, there's areas of global interest, uh, in their own self-interest, they can cooperate with us, and that's going relatively well. But it's, as you get closer to China, it gets more difficult. The Asian region uh, is the most problematical. And two other general comments, if I can, before we get to it. We think two very important components <clears throat> of uh, policy toward China is, first, Asian policy. And we lead with strong support for our allies as being almost the first thing you have to do. And I, am, I think we're all pleased that General Mattis went out to the region, and also the Abi summit seemed to go very well, although they're keeping secret who won the golf game, which is obviously top secret. Uh, but any of it, reassuring our allies is good. And then I'll get to the one, one China issue a little bit later. Uh, but I'm concerned, and I think my colleagues would agree, of various trends in Asia. The three hotspots are troublesome. The South China Sea, the maritime disputes could lead to accidental or conflict, uh, it's certainly a worrisome trend. We all know the North Korean nuclear threat we think is the most urgent, and we single that out as the most urgent task for security. Certainly in Asia, I think you could argue in the entire world, and it's very complex. And then Taiwan and somewhat related Hong Kong have been relatively stable and quiet the last eight or nine years, but for reasons we can go into, that could resurface. So you've got those three areas. Then you have various Trump pronouncements, not only one China in trade, protectionism in general, what he's doing on immigration, and all of this in terms of the U.S. as a possible model of a functioning society. Now, this predates Trump, and we've had this toxic political atmosphere and polarization, uh, and so we're not exactly able to spread the word on democracy as effectively as we should, should be. Then you've got specific issues like the leadership in the Philippines, which is making our alliance structure much more problematical. What is the future South Korean government going to look like? Uh, we have firm ally now, but with the impeachment of Mrs. Park, the next government uh, might have a different uh, perspective, uh, trade protectionism in general, and above all, the abandonment of the TPP, which we feel, and state strongly in the report, is a centerpiece of Asian and China policy. Uh, it has been totally abandoned since we wrote the report. We knew it was in trouble, but we're saying, try to fix it, don't throw it out. And it's important economically, we won't get into detail now, but we can make the case it's very advantageous just on strict economic grounds. But the geopolitical loss, the loss of American credibility and leadership in the region is incalculable. So we try to come up with some other options to regain uh, that territory. So these are just some general comments. If in the Twitter forum half of this was warning Trump on what not to do, of course one of it was don't throw away the one China policy. Now here, 
I have to point out, we've had an immediate positive impact with our report. We went down, as Orville said, <laughs> we went down, as Orville said, about a week ago and briefed administration officials, including on one charter, and we have from reliable sources that President Trump took that report and studied every line, <laughs> had an epiphany, and came out with reaffirming the one China policy. Now, the good news is that foundation is back in place. The bad news is how we got there. By raising the issue of maybe rethinking the one China policy, all of us, anybody who follows China policy, knew the Chinese would not budge on this. This is just too fundamental to the nationalism, the sovereignty, and not to mention domestic politics. So we were bound to have to abandon this threat at some point. So what happens? Trump talks to 18 world leaders, but he can't talk to Xi because he's not allowed to talk to him until we reverse our policy. So he finally does that. Uh, and he says, he reaffirms thanks to the invitation of Xi to reaffirm it. He doesn't. Now, that looks to the Chinese or could look to the Chinese and could look to other nations uh, as a cave-in. As, he's a paper tiger. He blusters and then he, their first exchange and <laughs> she rolls over. Equally dangerous is that Trump reads what I just said, not only goes on a Twitter attack on me, which I can live with, but because of his thin skin and his macho instinct and the art of the deal, he says, well, my God, everyone's saying I got outmaneuvered on this issue. I better take it out on some other issue, and he might do something stupid somewhere else. So we're glad the one China issue is behind us, but we're very unhappy the way it came, at least I'm very unhappy. I think my colleagues agree the way it came out. So we're off to a bad start uh, with the Chinese in terms of uh, credibility. Let me, let me speed up here on Taiwan and Hong Kong. I said that Taiwan's been relatively quiet in our relationship. It's always been sensitive from the very beginning. Uh, but we have a new government in Taiwan. The Chinese are pressuring Madame Tsai on certain formulas, which she won't accept. But she has been very constructive in our view and saying she won't unravel what's been accomplished and that she's for the status quo, uh, but the Chinese are nevertheless pressuring her on that. Uh, in our report, I just jumped to our recommendations. We basically say we ought to continue the policies of eight presidents of both parties in terms of the three communiques. I'm using shorthand here in Taiwan Relations Act. We can get into that uh, one China policy, but any future relationship across the straits has to be worked out peacefully with the support of the people. Continue arms sales. Uh, continue to encourage the dialogue and stability that's happened in the last eight years under a different government. Uh, continue to uh, support Taiwan vigorously in international organizations. Uh, but we do say very emphatically that you have to look at Taiwan not just through the lens of cross-strait relations, but as an important partner in and of itself. Unofficial, yes, but they are a vibrant economy, and they are a flourishing democracy, showing that Chinese people, or Chinese-slash-Taiwanese people, care about freedom, too. So they deserve respect and greater dignity than they've been given by the world in general. Uh, maintain the unofficial status, but step up senior-level visits, maybe work out trade arrangements, uh, and as I say, support them vigorously uh, in the international uh, arena. Uh, so that's a quick overview on Taiwan. I'll be even more brief on, on Hong Kong. Uh, the Chinese have been moving the last few years 
rather ominously to undercut many of the foundations of the agreements with the British and autonomy of Hong Kong. So this could be another issue that could surface. We have enough on our plate as it is. Uh, just to tick off a few, the chief executive of Hong Kong and how he or she is nominated uh, has been played with by the Chinese, contrary to at least the spirit of the agreement. Uh, members of the legislature who have leaned toward independence are being banned from taking uh, their seats. There are pressures on activities of uh, the umbrella movement and activists, uh, their families are being threatened. Uh, there's increased censorship and self-censorship in the press, increased uh, inroads on an independent judiciary and foreign and local NGOs. Uh, there's even been kidnappings. So we highlight these trends in the report. We have some recommendations. I've got to be honest here. Maybe my colleagues may disagree. We, we have trouble knowing exactly what we can do here. The British should be in the lead, but they're not exactly heroic on this issue. We have to continue to underline these trends. Annual congressional reports are useful in that. We should work uh, in functional areas to try to increase the autonomy of the uh, local government. Uh, but beyond that, uh, I'm concerned about the trends there, and I must say I don't think we have no. any magic solutions. But let me leave it at that. No, Hong Kong's a, a very troubling but a very frustrating area for the United States because... We really don't have much influence over what happens there. And uh, we make a few recommendations, but I don't think any of us are really satisfied. Um, and the trends are quite negative. Um, Orville, further thoughts from you about um, some of the recommendations in the report. You know, just uh, listening to you, you two talk and just sort of thinking out loud, um, I mean, I think one of the, the undeniable facts of the situation is this, that the U.S. and China have an immense amount of common interests and importance to each other, but they also have very, very different political systems and value systems. And this is, it's as if the foundation on which everything else sits is in a state of very volatile contradiction. And that influences almost everything that we try to do together. And I think uh, that gets back to this notion, you know, I remember very clearly all of us went to China in the 70s when Mao, for, for the first time when Mao was still alive, and the Cultural Revolution still hadn't fully ended. And I remember as Deng Xiaoping came to, into power thinking, well, okay, now that period is coming to an end and a new period is beginning. But I also remember thinking, it isn't realistic to think that uh, decades of revolution, ideology, class struggle, propaganda can just dissipate and disappear. And in fact, I think what we see now, and this may help explain why it is that we have such a difficult time coming to terms with China, that that revolution did create a kind of a narrative of us against them, of this notion that China lives in a, in a world where the great powers are predatory, where the systems are different, and there was an expression that John Foster Dulles used that the Chinese still use today, and it's peaceful evolution, as if you might think that's a good thing, 
to slowly and peacefully evolve. No, the Chinese Communist Party does not think that. Why? Because they think that is the way to regime change, to overthrowing the one-party rule of the Chinese Communist Party. And so, to be very sort of brief about it, they built this whole narrative of us against them, against imperialism and socialism, capitalism, colonialism. It goes on and on and on and on. But the basic supposition is that China and its socialist revolution live in a dangerous world, whether it's color revolutions, whether it's peaceful evolution, whether it's regime change, all of these things are conspiring to undo them. And it is that part of the Chinese Communist Revolution that kind of exists on like some recessive genes that keep re-expressing itself and keep undermining the fundamental ability to trust and to feel that we are going in the same direction. So I think this, these sorts of recognitions are extremely important as you try to make sense out of China and also as we try to figure out what do you, what's the best way to respond to China. Because on the one hand, you don't want to exacerbate a problem. You want to solve a problem. But I think um, if you all feel a certain bewilderment, not to say frustration, at why things are so difficult to work out with China, you are not alone. There are answers. There are reasons for this. And this is going to be an ongoing problem that has a lot to do, I think, with history. I think this is the philosophic, conceptual, and historical framework that's important for these issues. But... We have very concrete recommendations on a whole series of issues. We want to get to the audience, but you may want to touch. I mean, the 10 issues we've come out with are cyber issues, energy and climate change, global governance, Asia-Pacific regional security, North Korea, maritime disputes, Taiwan and Hong Kong, human rights, defense, and trade and investment. So we obviously can't cover all that now, but Susan, you may want to hit a couple of those and... Be more concrete. Well, I'm I'm just going to mention I think the trade and investment issues because it's emblematic of our approach, which is to um, try to find effective, focused tools to defend our interests in the context of relations with China, without. Um, so damaging the overall relationship that we end up in a hostile Cold War, trade war, or worse. So uh, on trade and investment, we recommend that we, um, first of all, do intensify enforcement of global trade rules and our own domestic law. And this is something I don't think the Trump administration is going to have any trouble doing. so, and that's fine if it's not across the board, if it's sensible and we communicate at the highest level and uh, are clear about what remedies China could take to dial down these enforcement measures. So that's fine. But we can't just have that negative enforcement agenda. We also need a positive leg. Uh, an agenda of cooperation to help uh, stimulate and reinforce the reform efforts of Chinese officials and Chinese uh, business people themselves. So how do we do that? Well, originally, our original idea was that 
the Trans-Pacific Partnership could play the same role as the World Trade Organization. In other words, we could work together with Chinese friends and develop a roadmap of things that we in China could do together. China could take these steps and ultimately join the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That was our positive agenda with the destination of TPP membership. Well, without TPP, that really leaves us in not a very good position because we don't have a clear destination to work together with China to achieve it. So instead, what we propose is that we uh, negotiate with China on a series of multilateral and bilateral agreements that would have systemic reach. Whereas enforcement is usually aimed at particular sectors, particular products, um, but there are systemic issues in the way uh, the Chinese government works with its businesses that really are unfair and need to be addressed and uh, are also antithetical to the market reforms. So uh, protection of state-owned enterprises in various forms and this kind of thing. So we propose a whole series of um, uh, negotiations with China and also leveraging the interest of Chinese firms for investing in the United States. Now we want Chinese firms to invest in the United States. That uh, is job creating, job protecting. We, we think it's a good thing to attract Chinese investment, just like we welcome in Chinese uh, investment from other countries. But on the other hand, um, we think that there should be greater reciprocity. And our firm should be treated fairly in China. So how do you do that? That's not an easy matter. Uh, because you could fall into a tit-for-tat, a uh, very destructive kind of dynamic. If we start, uh, for example, CFIUS, the committee that reviews Chinese mergers and acquisitions in the United States, right now it's, uh, those decisions are based pretty narrowly on national security. I personally don't think it's a good idea to expand the domain to just some vague national interest uh, criterion because that's a slippery slope and before you know it, we're gonna start looking like China in terms of our own protectionism. So it's a very tricky matter how we do it, but I think uh, we do need to have a more reciprocal and fair, equitable economic relationship. And uh, we do have a number of specific recommendations in the report for how to get there. But we don't want to just trash the whole relationship or end up in a trade war um, or turn ourselves into a mercantilist country. So that is the big challenge. Maybe, because we want to get to the audience, yeah. why don't we take the other issues and in two sentences sum up each one. Okay, go for it. Do you want to start? Or do you want well, one that I think is we believe is the most urgent, of course, is the nuclearization of the DPRK of North Korea. 
And in a few sound bites, I think our view is that actually the US and China have a tremendously important common interest here. They do not want, we, neither wants to see North Korea under Kim Jong-un uh, have nuclear weapons. Uh, but we haven't been able to get together. One of the things we suggest is a very urgent, high-level, forceful, last-minute attempt with this new president, he's a deal maker, to see if he and Xi Jinping can't get together to, to, to put maximal pressure on the North uh, through closing down banks, trading companies, one thing or another. And if that doesn't work, then the US has to go it alone. And that means secondary sanctions against Chinese uh, firms that do business in the North, banks. It means the THAAD missile system that, that, that is uh, now in play. And it means other actions the Chinese aren't going to like. But this has to be done literally in a matter of weeks or months. It can't drag out as, as these two colleagues of mine, who have both been diplomats, know that when you get talking with North Korea, 10 years can go by, and uh, you know, in a blink of an eye, and nothing happens. Well, the proposal in the report, which was endorsed by everyone except me, was essentially to have fast, high-level negotiations with sticks and carrots involving the Chinese and try to bring them around. I think we all agree there's no good alternatives left anymore. And it's a matter of the least bad. I think my least bad alternative is better than their least bad alternative. But I have great respect, particularly Susan's been involved with the North Koreans in track two uh, for, for decades. And we actually worked together on that. But without oversimplifying, my problem with their approach is which we go to the Chinese and, and try to, with sticks and carrots, to get the North Koreans back to the table, including a peace treaty. Uh, number one, I think that requires amnesia because we've been doing that uh, with the Chinese. The Chinese are part of the problem, not the solution, in my opinion. Uh, they prize stability on their border over nuclear uh, denuclearization. Uh, and the urgency of this with a possible intercontinental missile within a few years, it seems to me that that's going to drag out the Chinese who play equidistance between the two of us. The North Koreans will stall. So I propose, and I'll make this very brief, that the only way to get the attention of both the North Koreans and the Chinese is to make the North Koreans choose between nuclear weapons, which they now have in their constitution, and say they'll never give away anyway, by the way, make them choose between that and the only thing they value higher than that, namely regime survival. So I advocate immediate ratcheting up Iran-type sanctions, starving uh, North Korea foreign exchange, hitting Chinese uh, companies, flooding North Korea with information for destabilizing reasons, uh, enforcing UN human rights uh, concerns, uh, beefing up our deterrence and anti-proliferation efforts. And to do this quickly and with great uh, pressure, it has risks, but it seems to me bare minimum this will complicate uh, their program. Secondly, I think it's got a better chance of getting North Korea back to the table and faster than their approach. And thirdly, it does raise the specter of regime change, uh, which should get North Korean attention. And if it happened, uh, would maybe the only way we get rid of the, both nuclear weapons and the most repressive regime in the world. Okay, I think um, we also have a lot in the report, uh, specific recommendations about South China Sea. Uh, and um, 
as well as global governance issues and civil society. But I don't think we should go through yeah, it yeah, all. The only I other think ones I have in mind was defense and military relations. Oh, yeah. That's and a energy and climate change, which, of course, we're very much well, in favor of. Climate change, just in two sentences, has been the, uh, the most positive feature of U.S.-China relations uh, in the past few years. And we really urge not walking away from this. We think there are signs now that the Trump administration is not going to uh, walk out of the Paris Agreement. We hope that's the case. And we even make some suggestions as to Trump-like things that could be done to move to the next step of U.S.-China cooperation on climate change, like the uh, negotiations on transparency, on enforcement, which is kind of the next item up on the agenda in any case. So we, but certainly keep it alive. I mean, if U.S.-China relations uh, loses climate change as the kind of bright light of our global cooperation, it will be not just damaging from the standpoint of uh, mitigating the problem of climate change, but it'll be very damaging to U.S.-China relations as well. So I think we should uh, end there. Um, I, again, urge you to read the report. And uh, in the meantime, let's have a good conversation about the state of U.S.-China relations as we are here caught in between the uncertainties of what our own government's going to do, uh, the realities of what the Chinese government has already done, and uh, you know how can we get back on a positive track uh, in the relationship? That's the big challenge. Your, your question really is, is there any hope of sort of, sort of bipartisanship on the China issue? Uh, How do you move away from Senator Inhofe, who, who now yeah. has an opportunity to say, you know, the devil's over there? Yeah, how do you, uh, how do you move away from sort of uh, demonizing China? Um, I think what's so interesting is that this group of uh, senators we met with from the Senate Foreign Relations Committee were Republicans. And, you know, this, strangely, is a bipartisan issue, that the Republicans and the Democrats aren't necessarily on different sides. Everybody is confused. <laughs> and everybody is sort of searching for some new way to deal with this. Everybody recognizes, with rare exceptions, that the playing field is out of level in myriad different ways. And the question is, what's the right mix of sort of resolve, new resolve on the American side, but also preserving the fundaments of the relationship because this is such an important one. So I think actually you may see some curiously bipartisan uh, agreement on how to approach China if Trump could come up with a policy that uh, was coherent. Yeah, you put your finger on a key problem, not only for this issue, but so many other issues, the loss of bipartisanship in this country. It's not just China policy, it's the whole question I was talking about earlier about our own domestic society and how it cripples what we can do, not to mention being a model. As Orville said, over the decades, on this issue, the debates have been within the two parties, not between the two parties. I think that's still basically uh, true today. 
what I've been struck by, the group we assembled uh, is certainly bipartisan. I was a political party of Reagan and Clinton, so I'm bipartisan. Uh, but there was a general consensus that things are getting unbalanced in these three areas broadly that Susan outlined. And so the trick for this country, and we hope we hit this balance in our report, is to, on the one hand, acknowledge these disturbing trends and push back. The Chinese, I'm married to a Chinese, so I know they respect strength. Uh, and they'll, pro they'll probe weakness. Uh, and I think we see firmness and re more reciprocity, not just as an end in itself, but to have a more positive relations. We've all been working for that. But we do feel we have to get, if I can use shorthand, tougher. At the same time, how do you do that without demonizing them, without recognizing that we do have a lot of cooperation in global issues and our economic and other issues demanded, that it's not the Cold War. Uh, Chinese can be unpleasant in their policies, but unlike the Soviet Union, they're not sending troops abroad. They're not trying to convert other countries' systems. Uh, and we do have a lot of common interests. So that's why I gave you the Twitter account, namely maintain the basic framework, don't demonize them, but within that we have an obligation now to push back with smart, focused policies, not blunderbuss trade wars or upsetting one China policy. What are the carrots in uh, economic negotiation with China? Well, one of them is our market. They want to get into our market. And they need to get in. They don't have a lot of multinationals that are successful globally. And this is where they're going. So we do have that big uh, carrot to offer. Well, in in investment not no but i mean in the chinese interest in investing in our companies or creating establishing companies in the united states is a big carrot not not trade because our market is already so open um so we don't you know uh they have access to our market we're not going to, and we don't like the idea of introducing across the board tariffs on all Chinese goods or all foreign goods as some of the folks in the Trump administration have been discussing. Yeah, it's a, not the exact same issue that you raised, but when the Chinese raised the idea of an Asian bank, I'm not saying this is a carrot, we had a knee-jerk reaction. We've corrected it since then, in which we said it's a lousy idea, told our allies not to do it, and of course, and went ahead. Instead of that, we feel we should have said, well, we have some concerns. Uh, how are you going to govern this? Is China going to dominate it? Well, how about transparency, corruption? But let's talk and try to influence it in a positive way. That's what we're doing now. But it, it, just because it's a Chinese initiative doesn't mean it's a bad idea. And there was a genuine need in the region for that. So we, I don't know if it's a carrot, but we could have been much more positive in our initial response, the same with the silk bed you know, road and so on. Uh, but frankly, one belt, one road. Yeah, I'd never get that title <laughs> right. But but frankly, we've really felt at this stage we, we got to focus on sticks uh, that the one, one needed right now than carrots. To be honest, it's an unbalanced economic relationship. The trade balance, we don't think is the most important issue. But when you have a deficit of one billion dollars every single day, that's gets your attention. Uh, now we can argue how significant that is, but. It is emblematic of an unbalanced relationship. Paul? 
Oh, yes. Uh, the question is, you know, uh, we shouldn't assume China's a unitary actor and it's just everybody in China thinks the same and what are the key uh, constituencies, different groups uh, in, the, in China's domestic uh, policy process. And we did not get into that very much in our report. Um, we focused actually on government actions primarily and, uh, you know, government-to-government -government, uh, interaction. But in a piece I just wrote that's coming out tomorrow, I think, um, in Foreign Affairs, I'll give it a little plug, uh, called Getting to Yes with Beijing, I focused on the domestic uh, dynamics. And I made the point that when we devise our policy strategy toward China, we should do it keeping in mind that there are these different groups and that some, for example, on reforms, you know, private business people have a very different perspective than the state-owned enterprises or the uh, military or the internal security apparatus or whatever. So, uh, and we should think about how do you reinforce the reform agenda in China and help those folks who are trying to make the case uh, inside China. I think Orwater comment is one of the great experts on what the hell's going on in China. Well, I mean, it's looking through a glass darkly. Um, I do think that there, there are a lot of different groups that are really out of play now in China. I mean, at different periods of Chinese history, you intellectuals or students or the military, you know, different groups played a very prominent and active role. Now I think, you know, uh, uh, intellectuals are almost forgotten. And if education, insofar as it comes up on this, anybody's screen, is business administration, computer science, the sciences. But as for history, you know, philosophy, theology, all of these things, uh, these sort of humanistic arts, uh, they really don't register. But these people are there. Well, history is airbrushed. Young people don't know about Tiananmen Square, the Great Leap Forward, uh, and uh, there are forbidden subjects in universities and think tanks of what you can talk about, like rule of law, free press, but go on. I just point yeah, out, I think I'm just uh, emphasizing your case, absolutely. This this discussion would not be possible in China. Uh, and and be, we have Chinese press in the audience. It's not their fault. I have great respect for them, but they're not going to report anything negative. What, the report of this back in China will be, we're for one China. We've got to cooperate. You will not hear any critical stuff that we say today reported by the Chinese reporters in this audience back home. I can guarantee it, and it's not their fault. Well, that seems to be a, a pretty good place to end. So thanks so much for the excellent questions, the discussion. And I, and I, I, I also want to thank my colleague Orville Schell and Winston Lord for uh, coming to UCSD today to talk about this report and we hope to have them back soon in the future. So thank you. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.